raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favourite things. And my guest on Favourites today, I don't know how many times I've heard him interviewed over the years by uh, Bruce and Phil and by Keith McGowan, of course, but uh, it's my turn to have a crack at him today. Normie Rowe, hello to you. Hello, Simon. It's great to speak in your own... uh in your own reality now, instead of being producer for other people. Oh, exactly right, yes. And uh, and I still work with Philip Brady, of course, who um, uh, we do the Remember When show on Sundays, but this is my own little thing, so I get to ask all the questions and and take it my way. Now, now first question. I um, recall an interview with Keith McGowan that you did in which you declared that I think it was about two, it was early 2000s that you f- drank coffee for the first time. Was that true or were you just putting it on? No, absolutely true. I, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't bear to walk past a coffee shop for most of my life. Yeah. And then a friend of mine who was playing piano for me over in WA, uh, Frank LaCarva or Frankie the Cave, uh, he said, oh, Mum and Dad would love you to come over and have lunch with us. I'll cook an, a lovely Italian meal. And I said, oh, well, I'd love to do that. So um, over I went, we had a lovely meal. And then uh, then Frank's father, Frank Senior, said, Normie, you must have had a cough. And I said, what? <laughs> Frank said, that, that means a coffee. Oh, yeah. No, no, I, no, I don't drink coffee. Oh, no, you must. And Frankie said... Dad just got a new coffee machine. You're going to have to, you have to humour him. And I said, oh, okay then. So he said, I know why you don't like the coffee. You must have the sugar with the coffee. In other words, you've got to have the sugar with the coffee just to take the bitterness out. And, uh, and so, of course, uh, that's how it all started. And then somebody also introduced me to Affogato, which is uh, vanilla bean ice cream, a, a shot of espresso coffee, and sometimes some Frangelico or Nocello. That's the, Nocello is the best. Uh, and, uh, and so there it began. Now I start my day with a cup of coffee every day. Well, I, how I, don't have, I never have one after midday, though. Uh, no, no, you'd be up all night otherwise, that sort of thing. I do like my sleep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, look, the, the reason I guess that's stuck in my mind is I have never liked coffee. I, I can't stand the taste. I've never liked the smell. It, uh, it sort of does my head in a bit, coffee. I, uh, and any time, and I don't drink tea either, and any time you go to someone's house, they say, oh, can I get you tea, coffee? And you just sit there dying of thirst saying, no, I'm good, thanks. So maybe I need to try it with sugar. Uh, Simone, you must have the sugar with the, the cough. You well, must have. <laughs> well, I was married to an Italian for the you know, best part of 30 years, so you'd think I would have learnt by now, but no. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, yeah, I just found that fascinating thing, the, the coffee story. Now, so let's go back to, um, to Normie Rowe's humble beginnings. You're a Melbourne boy, aren't you? Yes, I am. I grew up in Northcote, um, just over the uh, Merry Bridge, opposite what was once uh, the Albion Hotel, then the Albion Charles, and then I think it was the Fitzroy Club Hotel for a while there, adopted as the Fitzroy Footy Club's own hotel, but uh, it's back to the Albion now, and uh, it has some very 
various memories because it was a real suburban watering hole and uh, at various times of the year, different behaviours took place due to the alcohol consumed. <laughs> and so when did Normie Rowe first pick up a guitar and, uh, and you know, belt out something into a microphone and think this is the life for me? Well, I, um, I used to go to these things called social evenings with mum and dad and, and my sister and my brother, who were both older than me. Uh, and uh, it was part of the, the Northcote Cricketers Football Club. Uh, as you're probably aware, AFL, or as it is today, began as a, uh, a winter season to keep the cricketers fit right, right through the winter season. And, uh, and, and it was so all, all right across the whole of Victoria, I guess. Um, anyway, uh, they would go uh, maybe once a month or something like that. And there was always a band playing. And the band, cons- it was an old-time band. You know, they played all the... Wa- the waltzes and the prides of Erin and the, the uh, evening three-step or two-step, whatever it's called, the, the barn dance, uh, all those sort of old dances. And, uh, and the band always took, I took notice of. But I was only, only young. I was only three or four years old. And I saw the thing that going on there. There was a drummer and a piano player and a saxophone player. That, that's, that's what constituted the band. And uh, I would be hanging around the bandstand the whole time, and I wanted I would the, the drummer would ask me to come up and uh, would you like to have a hit on the drums, all that sort of stuff. It was it was a wonderful thing that uh, that these musicians always seem to have some sort of empathy for for little kids, you know. That's nice. Uh, I still see it today. It's a wonderful, um, uh, I suppose, community uh, attitude. So uh, then. Um, Mum, yeah, they, they'd say, oh, they'd have a microphone, and they'd say, uh, can you sing a song? And, and Mum would say, sing Popeye the Sailor Man. Well, I used to contort my throat, so I sounded like that as a little <laughs> kid. That sounded, that was quite cute, I, I would imagine. And I, and I sang the Popeye the Sailor song, um, and I got a big round of applause, and I, I guess... At age three or four, that was it for me. Yeah. Uh, two things there. Uh, anything that makes a noise when you're that age, like getting the chance to belt something out on a set of drums, uh, that, that's got to be exciting for any kid because it's loud and it's, it's a great noise you can make. And, yeah, and anything that gets a round of applause, that also gets you in. Yes. Well, I had a double whammy and, <laughs> and that was it. And you know something, Simon? I have never, ever been scared of walking out in front of a big, walking out in front of a big crowd, it's never been uh, an issue to me for some reason. Yep. Sure, sure, I get nervous. I think I think if you don't get nervous, uh, you're not doing it right. And I also think that whatever causes those nerves, the the build up of adrenaline, etc. Um, I I really think that that's the drug that you get when you're. Uh, when you are a performer of some sort, and and so if you if you're not getting those sort of buzzes before you go on stage, then you're not doing it right. Uh, you you say you're never nervous in front of a big crowd. Do you find it harder in a small room with a handful of people to uh, to no. have the confidence to chat? Well, I, the way I see it, a big crowd is just a collective bunch of uh, uh, of individuals, and and I like to try and. Um, 
Let's see if I can communicate with every individual person in the room, if I can. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I find uh, I've had a lot of performers perform to the front couple of rows, which um, which precludes the people in the two back rows. Yes, yeah. But uh, one of the things I did learn when I was doing Les Mis was uh, that um, most of the lights are above the audience, and if they, if you've got to be seen, you've got to project your whole performance basically above the audience. Uh, and, and so I always cho- choose to work invariably to the back row of the audience and everybody in between the back row and the front row. And that way I can have everybody in the room if, if I'm doing stuff that they like. I want to get onto the stage show uh, part of your career in a minute, but firstly, where, where was the first gig for Normie Ray? Let's just uh, back to the music for just a sec before we get onto the stage shows. Where was your first gig? How did that come about? Well, I guess um, I guess I did some things in primary school, um, but I, I think. In general, I, later on in primary school, I was going to uh, to the Lutapano Music School, and Lou, of course, at that stage was the band leader, I think, for Channel Seven. Yeah. And he had this music school down in St Kilda, and I get a bus all the way. I, that was my second music school. The first one was was uh, the Victoria Banjo Club in Swanson Street, uh, but I went down to the Lutapano School to extend what I was learning, and uh, they had concerts every year. Uh, and the first big one, I guess, was the end, the first end of year concert when I sang Cole Joy's Rock and Roll and Clementine. And, uh, I must have been 10. Uh, I sang that, that song, uh, and I got the best performance of the night. No, that's <laughs> and good. Of course, that, uh, what, if, if the, if the rocket had been lit, in the afterburn just got ignited. <laughs> so uh, uh, that was that was it to get that. And then, of course, a bit later on, Lou used to do these shows with his school students on the banks of the Yarran Alexander Parade on the back of semi-trailers for Moomba. And he'd employ Stand a Man Rofe from uh, 3KZ, the radio station at the time. Yeah, huge And uh, Stan liked what I did and asked me if I wanted to be a singer and of course I said yes and he then organised to take me to Preston Town Hall where at that age, uh, I think I was uh, perhaps 12 uh, at that age I was on stage at Preston Town Hall singing with the Thunderbirds um, and, and they I only knew about them on radio I mean it, that, that was like dying and going to heaven for me Yeah, uh, and I have still have fond memories of that night and the ensuing I, from that time I basically didn't stop singing at dances around Melbourne and uh, uh, as the Beatles thing hit and uh, Australian music was looked at as something commercially viable that's when I picked up uh, a contract with Sunshine Records and started recording and the rest is as I say history. When you're a, a little kid and you're you're learning you know, guitar and singing and performing and stuff, normally you would take the path of sort of impersonating or you know basing your work on on somebody you love. Who would that have been for you? You've mentioned Cole Joy. Would it have been Cole? Uh, 
I look, it was just a, all of the music, and having a mentor like Stan Rove, yep, to me was um, well, I was very lucky because Stan had access to all this music that one would never hear on Australian radio at the time, um, because he had some some friends in Qantas who would be flying across to the United States, and they'd bring back the latest records and the copies of Billboard and. And um, what was the other one? Uh, Cashbox uh, magazines, and he would have all the up-to-date information, uh, and that that all of that information more or less bled into me. I was so lucky, and then he gave me uh, "It Ain't Necessarily So," which was then rearranged by Patrick Alton, uh, the producer, um, and uh, it became. You know, well, like the records after that were pretty much that way. The way I chose them was basically on a good song rather than who sang them. Yeah. Um, now, just before we get onto the stage shows, I, we will get around to that in a sec, but uh, it's it's been well documented, the whole uh, uh, Vietnam saga of your life and how uh, and, and that sort of destroyed that pop career that you had going. Um, but I note that you played... Harold Holt uh, at some uh, at a point in your career, and I thought that was just a, a touch ironic, given it was pretty much him who uh, who destroyed that career, that part of your career. It's funny. I, I've actually played him twice. Yeah. Once, once in uh, the Prime Minister was missing for the ABC, uh, which is, I was the only Harold Holt who went to swim in Cheviot Beach and got, a beach and got to use a towel. <laughs> um, I suppose that's pretty dark humour, but nevertheless, he did. It was He was responsible for me, for my my then pop career being destroyed, so I don't care. Uh, the other the other thing was uh, was for the musical, Normie the Musical, which was uh, written some time back, and uh, it... it it went uh, onto the stage at Scotch College with a lovely uh, amateur group. They were just they were every bit as professional as anybody getting paid lots of money and they were, they were terrific. It was a wonderful experience. But I really don't really like don't like reliving my life. Uh, and yep. uh, I've done it a couple of times and it's I, I find it really um, emotionally dra- draining. To do to try and do your own story and all that sort of thing. I I wrote a book some time with uh, uh, with Ed Nimmervoll some time back, and we did it in a way that we did it in in basically in serial form uh, when we were writing it. So it it wasn't so draining, but uh, I I don't know that I'd like to be doing it every night of the week again. No, uh, it was just it was just too hard. Well, you, um, you have had, we won't go into it all, but uh, fair to say you know, that you have had your fair share of, uh, of downs in a life, in, in a, a great show business career, both, both pre and, uh, and after Vietnam. Um, and there's been some certainly rough times and, and rough times personally as well. Again, we won't, won't go into that, but uh, it's, you know, if uh, somebody's life is to be played out on stage, yours is certainly, uh, from, from a, a voyeuristic point of view, a, a one of those lives that you go, wow! How, how did uh, how did Normie Rowe go through all of that? Yeah, well, you know, 
I, I guess um, one of the things you're alluding to, obviously, is, is Vietnam. Then, then of course, uh, a little while longer, I lost my dad at age 59, and not not far after that, I lost my little boy at age eight. Yeah. Uh, I now have no no uh, family around me apart from my my beautiful daughter in Melbourne, and my my son in on the Gold Coast, and their their kids. And uh, and um, husband and partner and uh, you know the, I I think the thing that keeps me alive is is the the beautiful nature of the young kids that I've got surrounding me. You know my my grandkids are just everything to me. Yeah. Um, and um, and I really love pardon me doing what I do. I love I love singing. I love entertaining. Um, I really know what I'm doing probably more than most people in our industry go by trial and error. That worked, that didn't, that worked, that didn't. Uh, I'll keep the things that did work in and I'll leave the things that didn't work out. But I, I was lucky enough to spend nearly three years learning under the auspices of Hayes Gordon at the Ensemble, uh, at the Ensemble Studios in Sydney. And then I, that's where my... Uh, uh, my, um, if you like, my acting and my my uh, uh, musicals career uh, got underway. Uh, I had a, I had done other things before, but I didn't. I really didn't know what I was doing, and I don't think anybody's got enough time in their life to be able to do all the trial and error to be a rock singer, and then all the trial and error to be a, somebody that's that's doing drama and musicals and all that sort of stuff. So what was what was the first stage show you did and how different was it stepping out as a character rather than as Normie Rowe? Yeah, well, it was obviously very different. <laughs> um, Hayes said, I think I've got a play for you. It was written by the guy who wrote Flying Doctors. <clears throat> and I, I said, all right, okay. Um, uh, I, I read through it and it, it, the part was Vin Gray who was a fading and aging rock star, and I said, "Are you cast? Are you casting, casting me a type?" Oh. <laughs> and he laughed. Uh, but but I grabbed it uh, as much as I could with all gusto, and it, it went pretty well. And from that, uh, the producers of Sons and Daughters came to see me work and put me into Sons and Daughters, playing opposite Abigail. Wow! Uh, and I did that for nearly two years. And Abby was one of the most generous people I've ever met, either in or out of show business, but certainly in show business, she was uh, remarkable, absolutely remarkable and remarkably uh, generous. She was also, I mean, everybody thinks of Abby, I guess, in what I consider really um, unfair terms because they sort of slaughter in a pigeonhole of being a sexy bimbo. Mm. But but she studied at RADA, the Royal Academy of Dram Dramatic Arts. She knew her uh, her, uh, her, her, her profession back to front. She was absolutely stunning with her knowledge. And without her, I would not have – I probably would have lasted maybe four or five weeks doing that role but she took me aside she said you're struggling with this aren't you and I said yeah I, I I'd learn and learn and learn all my lines I know them when the camera lights go on 
they go right out of my head. <laughs> and she said, you're trying to do too much. And then she took me aside, gave me some, some techniques to work on. It took me about, honestly, a week to understand what she was talking about. And then we worked opposite each other for, well, I suppose, nearly two years after that. Wow. I'm thrilled to hear that because yes, there's certain um, uh, women. Let's let's be sexist for a moment. There are certain women who, uh, throughout their careers, have just been drop dead gorgeous and and therefore just typecast, as you say, as as nothing more than that. So it's good to well, hear about you, the professionalism. Uh, Simon, sorry to interrupt, but don't don't you just love that Jackie Weaver is doing what she's doing? Yeah. in in the United States, I mean, she's the go to character actress of age. Yeah, um, and she's always been incredibly knowledgeable and, and wonderful, a wonderful actor, ter- terrific. But you know, she's not Margot Robbie, and she's not Kate Blanchett, and those sort of people. Um, but I'd be interested to see where they're going to be when uh, when they become, you know, when when they're not so, uh, if you like. Um, Eye candy. Yes, yes, that's um, that's that's the key, isn't it? You, I mean, uh, I mean, the, the, I'm talking about two wonderfully talented and unbelievably professional people here, Margot Robbie and and uh, and Kate Blanchett. But but understand that they are two gorgeous women, and um, you know, it's, it's making it's about making that transition in in a sense of uh, of going from. Uh, someone who looks good on a poster and having enormous talent to being able to carry on that enormous talent through after the poster's not that good anymore. Yeah, it's it's all very well to be woke and all that sort of stuff, but but with due respect, um, there are there are horses for courses, yep. you know. Yeah. Uh, and and people are attracted by by certain things, whether it's chemically attracted or whatever. Uh, it it the the fact is it happens and any amount of wokeness won't change that. Yeah, I, I'm a um, a Scarlett Johansson fan, and I'll I'll be blunt and say uh, I, I I just think she's gorgeous. I think she's absolutely stunning, and I'll watch anything she's in for that reason. But I also love the fact that when I do watch movies with Scarlett Johansson, at the end of it, I'm I'm quite you know, moved by the characters she plays, and and her acting ability is great. But uh, yeah, it, it, it's I have I will declare when I'm when I hear that Scarlett Johansson's got a new movie out, I go, good. <laughs> I'm very happy to, to watch her. Yeah, and Kate Winslet is is the same. I mean, my God, I've never seen a be- heard a better Australian accent than the one that she she did in, uh, I think it was The, the Dressmaker. Yeah. Uh, she was fantastic, you know. Um, and uh, uh, the girl who played... Uh, Fontaine in the movie of Les Mis, um, uh, his name slips by me, but but she did that uh, in that one song, um, I Dreamed a Dream, in one take uh, and one camera. That that's that's really something. I mean, there were no cuts. It was, was just one camera, one. And I sat there enthralled in her performance, if not by some of the other people who were cast in that. In their roles in Les Mis. Was that Anne Hathaway? Anne Hathaway. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Anne Hathaway played played Francine, and and but I was uh, I was severely disappointed with uh, with the gentleman who played Javert. Um, 
Oh, well, um, well, his career's going nowhere, so don't worry about him. Hugh Jackman. Who's no, that? no, no. Hugh Hugh played uh, Valjean. Oh, he but, did too. But, Sorry, no. Okay. He was. I thought he was very, very good. I'm not sure about the direction that they took the whole thing in, but, but then you know, I can't control what other people do with a with a piece of anything, really. Yeah. <laughs> um. I I heard, uh, I heard a version of Shaken All Over by um, uh, what's his name, uh. Uh, Moondance, the guy who did Moondance. Oh, v- Van, uh, no. Van Morrison. Van Morrison, yeah. yes. He's, he only recorded it just recently, and he, all he's done is copied Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. Now, yeah. <laughs> uh, my version of Shaking All Over, as as played by the Playboys, not my vocal. My vocal was was uh, uh, was smitten by. Uh, it sounded like I had adenoid problems, but I had a really bad, a bad cold on the day I recorded it. But uh, the band played what I think it was an exemplary uh, backing for "Shaking All Over," and it's never been, never been passed. So uh, it's, it's know, funny that you, you say. I'm just hooked at the moment on the uh, the fact that you had a cold when you recorded that. That was um, like you're the voice, John Farnham. He had a cold when he sang that, uh, and and you can hear it, the croakiness in his voice in some of those whoa 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 bits, and, yeah, and it, it well, actually it, lends it to more, the song. It was more all my all my uh, you know the congestion across the back of my nose and all that sort of thing because <laughs> I was singing "Shake It All Over." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. It's probably not as bad as that, but that's when I hear it. I, that's what I hear. <laughs> now, um, your favourite stage role because you've you've done quite a few over the journey. What what would your favourite uh, performance be? Oh, by leaps and bounds, uh, playing Valjean in uh, in Les Mis. It gave me the chance to do everything I'd learned from Hayes Gordon, everything that I learned and studied and understood about performance. Uh, that I that I'd learned right through my whole career, but but I was enlightened as to what it was. Uh, I said to Hayes Gordon one day, I've noticed that the second show in a run was always it it was always probably the least uh, the 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 least satisfying show that I've I, I've ever done in any whether I'm on tour, whether I'm I'm playing a season in a venue or where whatever it might be, he said, oh, yeah, that was documented by um, uh, Stanislavski over 125 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) He said he called it the reaction performance, reaction to opening night. And I thought, geez, I thought I'd discovered something new. <laughs> the, the, the dizzying heights of opening night, and then and then second nights just not not as good, not as it doesn't stir you as much. And well, funnily enough, with Lamias, um, we had eighteen uh, pre- uh, previews, uh, and uh, as well as some stage rehearsals and. Uh, and uh, dress rehearsals all in the theatre, as as well as six months rehearsing um, in another space. So we were we knew what we were pretty much what we were doing, what we were expecting, but but it just didn't have quite the edge. But after that, it had the edge for for the next six hundred performances that I did. 
Now, I, um, I've just looked at the time. You've been very generous with your time, but uh, let's get on to some of these favourites and then uh, and then you've got a gig that I want to chat about too. But uh, So here I've got a list of 50 things. Well, I won't ask all of them. I've got 50 things here in which you may have favourites. And the way this works, I just close my eyes and point at one and then ask you, Normie, what's your favourite of these? So, uh, Normie Rowe, your favourite sport to play? Ice hockey. Ice hockey, Okay. Not very Australian. <laughs> well, funnily enough, funnily enough, the Stanley Cup was first played in Australia. Yeah? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, my kids wanted to play ice hockey and I, I was taking them for a couple of years and freezing every time I went. And I thought, oh, if I learn how to skate, I can get, go around and pick the little kids up and and um, help the, the, the um, coaches do what they do and all that sort of stuff and I'd stay a bit warm. After a little while, I got the bug. I, I, every morning, I went to coffee club to learn how to do figure skating in a pair of ice hockey boots. And um, and in about four months, I put the gear on and I started playing ice hockey on a Tuesday night. Wow! It was it was uh, really fantastic. And I played my first game about uh, two months before I turned fifty. Wow! I don't think I've ever heard you mention ice hockey before. That's quite bizarre. Well, uh, I'll surprise you. <laughs> I never, I never do anything run of the mill. <laughs> uh, your favourite voice? This could be a singer or just somebody you like hearing talking. Or favourite voice? I, I really, I, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples of different areas if you don't mind, sure, Simon. Yeah. But, but first of all, as a singer. I don't know of anybody who sounds quite like the recordings, and and I even saw him live, thank God, uh, of Luciano Pavarotti. Oh, okay, yes. I I also love um, Placido Domingo, uh, although I don't think he has quite the resonance of Pavarotti, uh, but he didn't have the body of Pavarotti either for that voice (laughs) to bounce around inside. Yeah. uh, La Stupenda, of course. Uh, Dame, uh, uh, oh God, I, I keep going into these things and, and forgetting uh, 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 our own um, Dame, Joan Sutherland. Yeah, I, I was going to say either, either Kiri Takanawa or Joan Sutherland or Nellie Melba. They're the three dames I think of. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and uh, Kiri, funnily enough, I did a movie with back in the 60s, so she was only Kiri Takanawa. In oh, those days, yes. Um, and then there, there was a, a lovely American. Uh, I think she's a contralto called Jessie Norman. And my God, she is. Oh, I don't know if she's still around today because it was probably thirty years ago I first saw her. But she was fantastic. Ray Charles, of course, um, in the uh, in country. Uh, in uh, gospel and, and rhythm and blues, that sort of stuff. Um, as far as radio is concerned, I always loved Stan Rofe and I always loved John Laws. And I yes. thought John, why John Laws was because he, most of his life uh, he sounded authoritative. Yes. Um, and uh, I'm just talking about a, uh, somebody who, who as a as a radio uh, professional, was uh, probably second to none. Hmm. Um, I mean, a, a lot later, journalists became people on radio, and and 
it, it sort of faded for me because we used to have great voices in Melbourne. We had Don Lahn and we had Alan Lappin and we had Stan the Man Rofe. Yeah. We had Barry Ferber and we people with with humour and people with um, uh, with with you know who seriously sounded like what they knew about. So yeah, as far as voices concerned, those sort of people. Yeah. I, um, I find it interesting. Like we were talking earlier about uh, about Abigail and how she was more than just a, a pretty girl on the screen. She actually knew her craft, and and it, it sort of it just struck me then that it's not very rock and roll. You know, when when you think of Normie Row, Ro, you know, shaken all over to be talking about someone being a contralto, a contralto. Uh, it, it's it's all, it's like you know your craft. <laughs> Rather than just being a rock and roll, uh, you know, a legend, as it were, I, 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 there's sort of the, the same thing. Sort of applies there. To hear you talk about the timber in someone's voice and stuff is is quite marvellous because it's not it's not just Normie gets up and sings and he happens to do all right at it. You actually know your craft as well. One of the things that really frustrates me, and and I know a lot of other singers, but you know, I quite. I keep coming across singers who don't know what keys they do their own songs in. <laughs> and I, I don't know how you can have a whole career without knowing all of the really fine mechanical si- sides of things, you know. It, it's really important. I've got to do a show uh, next month in Sydney with Digger Ravel, and we've decided on a couple of songs, and we don't have the music for them. So I sat down to write it, and I just found because I've got – macular degeneration i actually i literally can't uh get the pen to go onto the part of the paper that needs to go so they won't be playing my chart but i (laughs) but i know what i've got to do um i know what it's got to happen but and i can i'll just have to tell somebody else to write it for me but those those mechanical things i think are you know they're really important and, and and it can define great musicians. One of my favourite clips, I don't know if you've ever seen this, there's a, a Bruce Springsteen clip on YouTube. Uh, part of Because he's been around forever, part of what he does, people in the audience will hold up signs of songs that he used to do and probably hasn't done for years and, uh, and ask him to you know, perform those at concerts. So in this particular clip, somebody held up a sign with You Never Can Tell, an old Chuck Berry hit. And, mm-hmm. and Bruce Springsteen said, oh, you, you never can tell. I haven't done that in like 40 years. And then he looks at his band and realises none of the band would actually know the song. But here <laughs> he is in a stadium full of people. So he teaches the band on stage how to play the song. He says, horn section, I need this. And, and he just sort of hums a, a bit of a tune. Uh, and, and he talks to his guitarist and his drummer and says, you know, this is what we want. And and then they, they sort of get, get a bit of a rhythm going and he changed, He puts a capo on his guitar and, and, and you know, tries to find the right key for him to perform it in. And, and then finally, when they've got a bit of a rhythm going, he just goes, one, two, three, four. And they belt it out, and it is the greatest performance you could ever ha- hope to hear of that well, song. Well, I'm, I'm glad that he can remember the words of that damn song. Well, I, I, <laughs> I reckon they probably stuck an auto cue thing in there somewhere. And, and in the time that he taught the band, they probably found the lyrics for him. <laughs> oh, no, you, you, look, you know, it's easier to sing a song that you, you learn when you were young than it is to I'm having I'm that's struggling true. with these two new songs I haven't sung yes that's true <laughs> but, yes but nevertheless um, it's going to be interesting for me coming up in in February because I'm doing uh, I'm doing a show with digger on 
one on Sunday the uh, the eleventh uh, in Sydney at Sydney South Sydney Juniors with with Digger Ravel. Now Digger's eighty two, yeah. and I saw him recently work, and he like he he's got the energy of a thirty year old. He's amazing, um, and sings so well, and, and and he's got a connection with the audience that you don't that you rarely see. So um, I'm looking forward to that. Then the following Wednesday, I'm at Penrith uh, Leagues Club with De- Ding Dong with Denise. Yes, lovely. And we've been doing shows around Melbourne over the last six months or so, and they've all been sellouts. And we've we've had the best time together. And she's such a wonderful professional. She's the best. Honestly, she's the best girl uh, performer that I've ever had to work with. She's she's just. Uh, you know, total professional. It's just fantastic. On my on my show a few weeks back, we listed the uh, who we thought were the top ten uh, television performers of all time, male and female. And and Ding Dong actually comes in as far as we can think. Uh, me and my little crew, uh, Ding Dong comes in at number one. I don't think there's been a more successful woman on television than, than no. Denise Drysdale. As and a the great thing about Denise is it's it's not all. Uh, uh, <laughs> There's a crass way of saying it, but it's not all, not all breasts and feathers. <laughs> That's true. No, she's she's always been fantastic, you know, and yep. and uh, and she still is. She's and and the, and the, the audience loves her. Yeah, that's that's a great thing. And then the following um, following weekend, we're out at the Dandenong Club yes. with Mike with Mike up there because Ailey Brady. Uh, and I was talking to him yesterday, and he said, "Oh, look, I've only got this one song up there, Kazali." And I said, <laughs> "What about man?" Uh, he was with P- MPD Limited yes. when he put together the arrangement of "Little Boy Sad," and my opinion is that that was the, very close to being the first heavy metal rock and roll song ever recorded in the world. Right. And he'll say, oh, what about the Trogs? And I say, well, I think you might have been before the Trogs. <laughs> wow. But he, but he had he had a, a quite a career before then um, with the Phantoms uh, and uh, a, f- a few other bands around Melbourne and everything. He played, played behind uh, Peter Doyle, who sadly passed away, um, and he and then he, uh, of course, started writing jingles. Yes, which is where up there Kazali came from, because largely it was a, a jingle. Yeah, um, for the AFL or VFL as it was in those days. But but you know you can't be a beat a sayo for a snack. Yeah, <laughs> you know he's done um, he's done so many. My favourite one, and I reckon he should do it as a he should actually perform it as a song. One of the greatest jingles he ever did is "Lucky You're with Amy." Yeah, lucky you're with Amy. Because as, as a song, it's actually a good song. You know, there's a lot of bad luck going round. Like if he sings the whole thing, it's actually quite an enjoyable number. He should actually yeah. expand it into a full three minute song and, uh, well, and do it as part of his set. Well, I that's what I was saying to him yesterday. I said, you know, you've got to put all your hit records in. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you, you know, you. It's like it's as if you're telling me that all you ever had was up there, Kazali and uh, uh, Little Boy Sad. But but what about all of that that magnificent success you had writing jingles with you by yourself or, or with Pete Sullivan, the two man band? You know, it, 
It's fantastic. And and you outdid any American stuff that was coming in from yeah. around the world. Yeah. And there were about three or four uh, identities doing a similar thing in Melbourne and a similar amount of people in Sydney. Um, my, produ- my first producer, Pat Alton, who produced Ain't Necessarily So, he did uh, Singapore Girl, uh, We're Going on a Magic Carpet Ride, which was a... Um, one of uh, Coca-Cola, a Coca-Cola, and I think he did Fancy Nancy, Fancy's Orange Fanta. You know, these things became, and even up there, uh, uh, Come On Aussie, Come On, were all jingles, yeah. and and they became part of the Australian uh, com- contemporary culture, you know, and, and I said, you've got to do these things because it reminds people that we weren't sitting on our backsides uh, waiting for somebody to play a, a song that we'd written that uh, uh, they didn't know anything about, you know. So so we, in, in our show out at Dandenong, he's decided to put uh, at least a few of his jingles in. Oh, you know? good. That, that, I'm glad to hear it because they are, as, as you say, they're iconic and we all remember them. And, exactly. And that, uh, that places them up there with, you know, your, your, the top 40 charts. Uh, it's just just because it's it's spruiking a product, it doesn't mean it's not actually good content. And uh, um, his song, uh, the Melbourne Cup song that he did, that Tuesday in November when they run the Melbourne Cup, that is yep. a ripper song. And then he he wrote a song recently, which is it touches my heart so much. Uh, my son introduced me to my dad because uh, Michael and his dad they were sort of they didn't get on too well. But Michael's son did a bit of research on his dad and found out that, you know, he'd been in the Second World War and he'd done a whole lot of other stuff, you know, uh, and, and from from which he he didn't come out of it all that um, that well and was obviously uh, a, a result of what had affected him during the Second World War. And, and it's a beautiful song. And it's, it, to me, um, people who can put that sort of stuff together uh, have a remarkable talent. I don't. I think they're today's poet laureates. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a, a good point and well made, I think. Um, Normally, we've, we've ended up talking about Mike, which is <laughs> rather than yourself here at the end. But that's that's a good thing because Normie Rowe and Mike Brady are not to be missed opportunity to enjoy the skills and charm of these two national treasures. Uh, the Normie Rowe, Mike Brady spectacular show, Sunday 18th of February, uh, Dandenong Club on the Green. Does that mean that it's outside and they're not letting you in the venue? Uh, it's it's on it's actually on the green, but they have a a an overhead uh, weather protection thing, a permanent one. Oh, and we've that. done I, I've done a couple of shows there, and they've been enormously successful. And recently, I saw Ross Wilson. Yes, uh, and that was once again enormously, and it's becoming uh, quite a venue out in the east. You know, it's um, it's it, it, it if if it. it if it expands, it will eventually, I'm sure, be able to hold nearly 2,000 people. Wow, that's that's in a nice. typically Australian type of venue. I think it, I think it'd be great. But uh, you know, baby steps until they get everything organised. Well, we're looking towards three, four, maybe maybe 450 people coming along on that day, and uh, it's it's uh, we've got a great production set up. Um, Great sound, everything. It's not too loud for for those of us who who protect our ears. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
No, that, that'll, uh, that'll be great. Dandenong Club uh, on the on the green, so out, outdoors at the Dandenong Club, uh, 1579 Heatherton Road, Dandenong. And if people want to book, 97921963 is uh, yeah. the number. It's essentially on the corner of Stud Road. Oh, okay. Can't miss it. Easy. Yeah. Uh, Norma, you have been incredibly generous with your time. Uh, it's been great chatting to you from uh, getting onto the freeway to uh, f- finally getting to whatever your destination was. Uh, <laughs> we've had a great chat. I've really enjoyed it. It's wonderful, Simon. Same here. And I, and I look forward to maybe doing it in the studio with you next time. Yeah, that'd be lovely. We'll, we'll have to do yeah. that. We'll have to get you in for uh, Remember When with Phil and uh, drag yeah. you in for an hour. Yeah, I think Philip knows I love him. Yep, that'd be that'd be perfect. Good on you, Normie. Normie Rowe.